the impact of many of the global mega trends that we are observing are felt mostly at the local level and this is the case of course for issues that relate to urbanization to demography or migration for climate change and globalization and that inequality it is generating but the local level has also gained a lot of traction in terms of bringing concrete solutions to these mega trends Co-op Radio, the Global Cooperation Podcast. Hi and welcome to a new episode of Co-op Radio, the Global Cooperation Podcast. We give a stage to voices, opinions and research that address the broad and decisive issues of global cooperation. So today we want to talk about cities. Wait, you'll say, what do cities have to do with global cooperation and what is even global about cities? And the answer is everything. That's absolutely right, because of an estimated world population of 7.9 billion people today, more than 55% live in cities. And their number is only growing, with a projected population increase of nearly 3 billion people by 2050. The importance of cities for the future development of human civilization cannot be underestimated, as by the end of the century, humanity will have become an almost exclusively urban species, with 80-90% of people living in cities. Whether these future megacities of the world become truly sustainable depends on how they respond to the challenges facing them already today. And that was even before the coronavirus outbreak of 2019-2020. Now, the current pandemic is a stark reminder that the history of cities has always been bound up closely with the history of disease. An estimated 90% of all reported COVID-19 cases have occurred in urban areas. City dwellers were forced to adopt drastic changes to their normal lifestyle, as typical urban ways of living, traveling and working made them more vulnerable to the contagious disease. Working from home, homeschooling and even lockdowns effectively locked many into small, sometimes crowded apartments. Ensuring food security, safe mobility and countering the effects of social isolation became major challenges for municipal authorities and urban communities. How did they manage? Were they able to learn from each other's experiences, and if so, how and what? And what can we all learn from this experience to better face the challenges of the urbanizing 21st century? For this episode, we were joined remotely from Paris by Aziza Akmouche, head of the city's urban policies and sustainable development division of the OECD, to discuss these and other questions around city-to-city -city cooperation in the pandemic response and more generally. Our research feature in the second part of this episode once again takes a deep dive into questions of internet governance, a topic that is all the more relevant considering the amount of time we have all been spending online over the past year and a half. It is our great pleasure to have Dr. Carolina Aguere as a Senior Research Fellow at the Center for Global Cooperation Research. In her project, she looks at questions like, what possibilities are there for cooperation and polycentric internet governance in the age of big data and artificial intelligence? And... Will the effect of artificial intelligence and business models based on data collection devalue the governance capacity, for example, of developing countries? More on that in the second part of this episode. First, let's tune into the conversation between our host for this episode, Professor Jan Altskolte of Leiden University, and our guest, Aziza Akmush. Hi, Jan, and a warm welcome to you, Aziza. Thanks very much. Hello, everyone. Welcome to our Global Cooperation Podcast. Today, we have the pleasure to speak with Aziza Ahmouch from the OECD. My name is Jan Scholte. I'm co-director of the Center for Global Cooperation Research, and we look forward to a half hour of discussion about translocal city-to-city -city global cooperation. Welcome, Aziza. 
Thank you very much, Jan. Thank you. Can you tell us a little bit about your work? Tell us a little bit about the division. Tell us a little bit about OECD's involvement in this topic. Sure. So the, the role of the OECD is to advise governments at different levels on how they can improve their public policies for better lives in general. So we produce a lot of data and international benchmarks, but we also do specific country or city reviews. We produce international standards, principles, guidelines that are the common denominators of member countries. And we also strive to foster the best practice sharing and, and so on. So what we do on cities in particular is to help national and local governments get their cities right. And that means help them go green, help them go smart, help them go inclusive, and make sure that the cities contribute to inclusive growth and well-being at large. Okay, it's an interesting focus on cities and on, if we can call it, the local level. Normally, when we talk about global cooperation, people have in mind uh, intergovernmental organizations like the United Nations or the World Trade Organization, and they think about collaboration amongst nation states, national governments. Here we're looking at the sub-national and local city level. OECD is an organization of member states. When did they start getting interested in cities and how does that fit in? This is very interesting as a question. Actually, we started working on urban policy about 40 years ago. 40? But okay. what has happened since then is that we have mainstreamed basically local and regional policy in all the sectoral policies that the OECD is covering because there has been an increasing understanding that most of the public policies that need to be delivered for better well-being are actually a shared responsibility across levels of government, not only in terms of the core competencies, uh, issues like housing or supplying water and sanitation, or even the transition to a low-carbon economy with the circular dynamics uh, and, and so on, but also in terms of investments, because in OECD countries in particular, a big chunk of public investment and public spending is discharged at the subnational level. So this understanding that national averages actually mask huge regional disparities and that you need to go very granular in the evidence and the data that you produce to make change happen, but also on the other side that cities and regions are not there just to implement nationwide directives, but also to develop, co-produce bottom-up initiatives that can help fix very concrete issues has uh, brought, let's say, an increasing local lens at the structural uh, macroeconomic uh, thinking of the organization at large. Is this one of these cases where things becoming more global also means becoming more local at the same time? Yes, absolutely. Not only because the impact of many of the global mega trends that we are observing are felt mostly at the local level. And this is the case, of course, for issues that relate to urbanization, to demography, whether it's population growth or migration or aging, but also for issues that relate to climate change and globalization and the discontent and inequality it is generating. So not only because these mega trends are felt at the very local level, but also because the local level has gained a lot of traction in terms of bringing concrete solutions to these mega trends. Uh, when you talk about urban mobility, when you talk about energy efficiency, for example, there's a strong 
leverage at the local level and actually increasing leadership of mayors that sometimes are even stepping in where national governments are stepping back. So it's really a dual consideration, not only because the impacts are local, but also because the means of action are increasingly local. Okay. Does it also mean that, I mean, the OECD classically is a place where officials from the member national governments, as well as observers, will come together to exchange and learn about different policy areas, but it's national officials who come together. Is there a shift in OECD then where now officials from city and uh, regional governments would come together and committees would actually be formed of people from the local level at OECD and not just at the national level? Absolutely, absolutely. I think we all agree that governance is not just governments and that governance is not just central government. So, of course, in the intergovernmental nature of the OECD, we have a number of what we call committees and working groups that put around the table on a regular basis the decision makers in the policy area that is subject to the work. We have, for example, a working group on urban policy at the OECD that gathers twice a year the directors for urban policy of the 37 member countries and also some partner countries. That's a big component and constituency, not only to share experience, but also to identify the needs, the pressing issues, and to make sure that the work we are producing at the OECD is helping solve these challenges. But on top of that, we have a myriad of organizations and stakeholders at different levels engaged in the daily OECD work. And for example, for five years now, we have had what we call the OECD Champion Mayors Initiative for Inclusive Growth that gathers 60 mayors from across the globe that have made the fight against inequality in their uh, respective cities a top priority of their political agenda. And this coalition of mayors helps also drive the dialogue with mayors. But on top of that, uh, we have other interesting platforms, for example, an OECD Mayors and Ministers Roundtable on Urban Policy, which on a regular basis puts around the table the local but also the national constituencies to favor basically this experience sharing. So it's not only central governments, it's central governments and a myriad of platforms that help cut across, let's say, levels of government, but also engage with the private sector and other stakeholders. Okay. And you said they're cut across. So is the message that it's not a case of moving from the national level and now focusing on the local level, but rather it's the international global work of the OECD combining through with nation states as well as communicating with local governments. So it's bringing those different levels together in one conversation, or is that being too... Yes, absolutely. I think it's, uh, it's really a, a systemic way at looking at public policies whereby you no longer have uh, thinkers in capital cities that uh, come up with nationwide uh, regulations or initiatives that then need to trickle down in different places. I think what we've seen, including in many OECD countries over the past decades in terms of the rising geography of discontent, uh, inequality becoming a hot potato, uh, regional disparities increasing and being sometimes more important within OECD countries and actually across OECD countries has prompted governments to really rethink the, the social contract with 
uh, local and regional governments, but also their citizens at large. And you really need all hands on deck to solve a number of these big pressing global transformations. Local governments, regional governments, national governments, supranational institutions, but also different stakeholders, including the private sector, academia and civil society. That sounds very complex. It is complex, but, you know, public policy and governance is about mastering complexity. If things could be clear cut, you know, on the paper and uh, roles are clearly allocated and responsibilities as well and uh, mandates being completely funded, you would not need complexity to be handled through governance precisely. So so governance is a way to manage these uh, multiple interactions, to make sure everybody's on board, to manage some of the trade-offs, to set the right incentives. And, and that's why public policy is there. Yeah. Is there an issue of different mindsets though as well? I'm trying to think a typical multilateral institution person and how they work with governance. On the other hand, a typical national bureaucrat and how they work with issues. Then a a typical local administrator and how they work with issues. When you start trying to talk across these layers of governance, does it become complicated because mindsets, expectations, language, work styles, etc. are different? Or does, in fact, everything come together in a seamless complex? My experience is that there has been increasing innovation in the very wires of public administration, whether it's city governments and how, you know, they revisit the way they engage citizens, they produce and share data, they build capacity, they drive user-centric policies, they put in place uh, system thinking, but also national governments and how increasingly, you know, uh, we are moving beyond silos, uh, addressing fragmentation issues, striving for policy coherence. A lot is happening in terms of innovation. And I think that, the, by the way, the global agendas that we have committed to, whether they relate to the sustainable development goals or the new urban agenda or even the Paris Agreement for Climate or the Sendai Framework, have largely contributed to set, you know, universal objectives that uh, provide a common language, a common framework for the public administration to rethink drastically how to plan, how to strategize, how to design policy, how to allocate budget, how to prioritize investment. So so I, I really think that there has been, you know, increasing convergence because of the urgent need to solve pressing issues across levels of government and that increasingly we are, uh, let's say, speaking the same language and aiming for uh, the same ultimate goals to leave no one behind, to provide basic services for all and, and so on. Yeah, I mean, one of those urgent global issues has been the pandemic ongoing. A lot of the commentary about global cooperation in this COVID-19 pandemic has been quite pessimistic. People have looked at the United Nations system, have looked at the World Health Organization within the United Nations system, and have been generally disappointed. The, The Secretary General of the United Nations has minced no words to say that things have been very disappointing. Likewise, in in arenas like the G20, uh, where the government leaders have come in, not necessarily very much going on. Vaccine nationalism and competition coming out to the fore at the moment. When you are looking at what has been happening at the city level, 
and translocal cooperation at the city level. Are there more, are there happier stories there? I I would be much less um, pessimistic on what multilateral cooperation has delivered over the past year. I think that uh, the huge success that we have achieved in not only getting a vaccine and, and spreading it, but also fostering, let's say, the basics of solidarity, including within the European countries, for example, and having a, a coordinated way of, uh, of handling the crisis, added to the massive government support that was provided to minimize the devastating economic and social effects of the crisis is something unique. We can always see the half empty glass or we can see that at times of crisis, there are unique amounts that were put at the service of mitigating the effects of the crisis, whether it's uh, economic measures, recovery packages, but also big, bold ambitions towards you know, the green, inclusive, smart recovery. And this is not nothing. This is something that helps us you know, stand and stand up. Now, at the local level, of course, there have been many downsides. Let's be honest, what has taken 500 million people out of poverty in China is trade and globalization. It's not development cooperation. So when you are in a system with a, a halt in production that has been hitting supply chain all over the world with a major collapse in consumption, with a major collapse even in public confidence. This is inhibiting, let's say, the potential that comes from globalization and that basically drives uh, forms of cooperation across countries and also at the local level. But what we have seen, uh, and that's the positive side of the story, is that even if cities were slammed by the crisis and mayors often at the front line let's say of the policy responses in the emergency phase of the of the crisis most local and regional governments were eager in parallel to learn from what was being done elsewhere and to adapt and replicate very basic measures such as those that had, for example, targeted specific vulnerable groups, the elderly, the youth, the migrants, uh, the disabled people, and all these solidarity chains that we have seen at the subnational level. Measures that aimed at ensuring, let's say, business recovery and supporting SMEs, because this is, again, something that you feel at the very local level. Measures that aimed at addressing basic affordability issues while ensuring the continuity of local public services, whether it was water, sanitation, energy, and so on. Measures that were related to public space and how you rethink the public space at times of social distancing. So one could have thought that this crisis would have led to a uh, more, you know, inward looking attitude and because of the shifting priorities and because of the emergency and the crisis that had to be managed on a daily basis. But we have seen the opposite happen. We have seen multiple avenues, including at the OECD within our Champion Mayors Initiative, whereby mayors were 
taking the time to talk to their peers to see how the things were happening in other cities of of similar size or similar patterns and borrowing very quickly all these innovations and experimentations that were being tested and that have replicated sometimes at a huge scale, uh, whether it's the way cycling paths have proliferated from one day to another or many other measures. So I, I think, the, of course, the, the effects of the crisis were uh, huge and, and this stall in production consumption has implications for trade and therefore for poverty alleviation at large, and the crisis has been a magnifying glass on, on all forms of inequality. But on the other hand, we have seen really the willingness from mayors and local leaders to learn from their peers and engage in this peer-to-peer cooperation that has brought very practical solutions back to their contexts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And practically, how does this communication and learning take place? You mentioned the Champions Mayors Initiative, but are there established channels or are these informal channels? Uh, uh, people from the different cities have met each other at conferences, so they know each other's emails and they just casually uh, give each other a call. Uh, or are there institutionalized uh, regular collaborations? Anyway, how does it work in practice sort of day to day? So you had different channels, and at the OECD, we've used three. The first one was very quickly, as of the end of March, so literally two weeks after most countries went into a lockdown, at least in OECD uh, region, to provide a repository of all the policy responses that were being put in place. Mm. Milan has been doing this, or Bilbao has been uh, mapping uh, people aged above 65 years old and uh, assigning uh, staff in the city administration to give phone calls and check on them and, and ask whether they need something and avoid this isolation that could be risky as well. So we, we have mapped as a OECD secretariat in less than three weeks, policy responses in about 100 cities worldwide around different issues that we considered were prerogatives at the local level, targeting vulnerable groups, ensuring the continuity of local public services, uh, supporting business and SMEs recovery, and so on. So that, that was the first thing. And providing that knowledge and putting it in the public domain so that cities can inspire from each other. There was, of course, a second channel, which is Uh, organizing very short closed-door meetings with select mayors that were uh, struggling, let's say, with the same hot potatoes, evictions in relation to housing affordability and what kind of regulations could be put in place at the very local level, Uh, homelessness and how this was being handled, or very practical issues such as should we leave public gardens open or not in this national context of lockdown. And so those were really sometimes one-on-one, three, four, five mayors uh, gathered in a Zoom uh, and then just Mm. talking one hour about what was happening in their respective cities and then uh, learning from each other. And then there was a third step which was more forward-looking, was more extracting from all this knowledge we have and all these interactions we have with the mayors, what we see as the big paradigm shifts for rethinking the city of the future and what needs to be done concretely today for cities to turn green tomorrow, to be more inclusive, to, to make the best use of technology and the digital revolution. And those were more kind of common denominators and ways forward that were, you know, co-produced, let's say, with all the the cities and that are now being used in the recovery strategies, you know, to keep a bit of a long-term perspective on how to build back or build forward better. 
So it's a mix of providing the data, the evidence, providing the avenues. We have a, a private space in the champion mayors meeting where mayors can talk to each other without even uh, having the secretariat of the OECD, it's just uh, facilitating the contact and allowing for this direct interaction and then providing the vision and the more long-term guidance to support the recovery strategies that these cities are building. Yeah, yeah. And these kinds of communications, is it always at the high level of the mayors? It's always the leaders that, that come together or are the, the department heads and, and people lower down in the city administrations getting involved as well? It depends on the topic. Mm -hmm. We've been having exchanges at mayor level. We've been having exchanges, for example, with chief innovation officers in the cities or with city managers themselves or with chief resilience officers when they existed. We also had uh, exchanges, for example, with uh, specific sectoral constituencies in the city administration on issues related to housing, to public space, to urban mobility. So you, you need the political leadership and, and of course, to uh, catalyze action and, and, and set the level of ambition. But you also need really the wires of the city government administration and the, and the staff, let's say, that is uh, mm. uh, making all this operational, have equal access to that international knowledge and experience. I mean, can you take us into a little bit more detail? I mean, take your favorite example of, uh, of innovative collaboration among cities that you've seen during this uh, pandemic period and take us through a little bit more of the detail about that. Maybe it's about the parks. Maybe it's about the, the, the homeless. Uh, maybe it's about uh, keeping uh, major services going. I think just wondering in the concrete sort of day-to-day, -day, how does something, you know, who, who had the idea, uh, who brought it together, uh, what happened in the interchange, what was the innovation that came out? Yeah, so what we saw from, let's say, this plethora of, of examples is that not everything that is new is an innovation and not all innovations are new things. And this was actually interesting that there are solutions that had been experimented 20 years ago, but maybe were not benefiting from the momentum that was making them socially and politically more acceptable today than in the past. For example... One of the big takeaways from this crisis with the teleworking revolution and all the conversations around what are we going to do with all these office spaces where people will no longer work or at least no longer work full time and what is the future of the city center and the revival of downtown if we don't have all these business activities happening, especially in those uh, business districts and so on. One of the messages that is coming back now is this idea that we need to use more chrono-urbanism. We need to revisit completely our relationship to time. Uh, in the digital revolution, because we have done in six months with teleworking what would have otherwise taken a decade, we maybe don't need to keep doing the same thing at the same time in the same place. And maybe people don't need to bundle into crowded transportation to get to the office at 9 a.m. So there are some cities like Rennes in, in France, for example, that 20 years ago set what they called at the time in French a bureau des temps, an office for time, where, you know, working on the starting time of a kindergarten or a public employees or uh, postponing by half an hour the beginning of uh, courses at university for the 8,000 students of, of the city have managed not only to introduce more equality between men and women, but also to save millions of euros that extra infrastructure would have required, for example, because of those peak hours. So this idea of 
revisiting the synchronization of our social life across time and not only thinking of agglomeration benefits as being spatial, they're also related to time, is something that is not new. 20 years ago, there is a city that, and now it's something that is gaining traction in many cities that are putting in place really similar thinking and similar infrastructure to see very concretely in the basic services and in local uh, economic development and employment strategies, how they can make this happen in practice. And, and that was, I think, something that from this crisis with the digital revolution came out very prominently. Okay. Likewise, I mean, crises can also bring out or bring into sharper focus some difficulties. Have you found from the, the pandemic experience of collaboration among cities and so on that it also shows there are things yet to overcome? I mean, this translocal global cooperation at the local level is it's relatively new and underdeveloped in overall global cooperation. So you might expect it to have teething problems or some various challenges. Do certain challenges come out of the COVID experience of translocal cooperation where you say, ah, this is what we need to work on in the future? Well, there are. It's, uh, we're still in the midst of the crisis, so probably it will take a bit more time to draw some of the lessons. But if we look back, for example, at the previous major global financial crisis in 2008 and the impact it has had or not on global cooperation, there are interesting lessons that can be taken. For example, the proxy that is often used to quantify this global cooperation between cities or between regions is what we call the official development assistance that is extended through local and regional governments. So basically, ODA flows that go from one city or one region from a development assistance committee, donor country into developing countries. And what we saw after the 2008 crisis is that those volumes have actually uh, remained stable, if not increased, mm. despite the global financial crisis where, you know, it could have been as a consequence a slash. Uh, and we know there was a crunch in public investment. There was a slash down in, in public finance and so on. But cities and regions continue to devote that amount for solidarity and peer learning experiences. And what was 1.8 billion US dollar in 2005 became 2.3 billion US dollar in 2017. And of course, that's peanut when you look at the total volume of official development assistance. But you have some countries where this can represent almost 5% of the total aid that they're providing. This is the case of Spain, of Belgium. This is the case of Austria, of Canada, and so on. So the previous crisis taught us that it does not shake somehow that specific component, let's say, of, of decentralized development cooperation and that cities and regions continue to understand the value of, of engaging in some of these cooperations on a range of issues that go from, you know, health to education to water and sanitation, food security and, and so on. So there is hope and I, I hope that this crisis is keeping us on a similar pathway. Now, if there is one major Take away, I think, in, in the types of cooperation that uh, cities are having with each other in the post-COVID-19 era is that what used to be considered as decentralized development cooperation around health, because there was uh, a lot of uh, technical assistance and peer-to-peer -peer exchange, uh, not only about the infrastructure and nurses and doctors, but also about public policies and so on. 
is now becoming extremely important to fit for, to fit for the future, but not only within the health box, but, but in terms of what we call the social, economic, and environmental determinants of health. I think cities have understood that even if in most cases, they're not responsible for the biggest share of investment that goes to the health sector, because this is remaining largely centralized in, in, in many OECD countries. Mm. They are responsible for many public policies that are contributing to better health outcomes. How you minimize air pollution, how you reduce traffic congestion, how you rethink the the use of individual cars in in large metropolitan areas. And so we see everything you've heard about, the 10-minute city in Brussels, the 15-minute city in Paris, the 20-minute city in Melbourne, you know, this discourse around accessibility and how you shift from a logics of mobility to one of accessibility is lending itself to excellent peer learning and city-to-city cooperation globally. And we've seen many mayors, you know, commit uh, to that paradigm shift and learning from each other in terms of the concrete implications in terms of public space, infrastructure, amenities, access to basic services, and so on. So those are areas, you know, that I think have been prompted and accelerated by this pandemic, Mm -hmm. how we rethink the city of the future and how we learn from each other across different countries to get there, basically. Yeah. And looking at the institutional frameworks for these communications and collaborations and learnings and so on, does the experience of the pandemic tell us that we're on the right path? The kinds of less formalized, perhaps uh, spontaneous, adaptable collaborations that cities have been doing, that this is what works? Or do we say, no, the city-to-city collaborations are reaching such significance and such intensities that they want further institutional development? We want something like a United Cities. I know there's United Cities and local governments, but it's it's a a smaller thing. But I mean, a a UN-type apparatus, I mean, really focusing on the city dimension and giving it a, a, a relative autonomy and building it up so that it begins to have a significance maybe of the kind that we see regions macro regions, you know, you have mm. the European Union, the African Union, the ASEAN, and so they have become major, there's a major regional component to global governance now. Uh, should we be having something similar develop at the city dimension? You know, I think governance and uh, governance structures are a means to an end and forms, you know, should follow functions. I think what local governments have been excelling at doing over the past decade is to raise the profile of their contribution to many global agendas and to making it crystal clear that we are not going to fight climate change. We are not going to have a quality urbanization. We are not going to address the migration challenges. We are not going to fix the inequality or, let's say, the discontent, social discontent of the population if we don't work hand in hand across local and regional governments. So the massive advocacy that was successfully done was done in in a way that was mainstreamed across all global agendas. So we had many mayors going to the high-level political forum in the UN and saying, we are part of the solution and we are already doing part of our job. 
We had many mayors and local and regional governments and their umbrella organizations also that have facilitated that advocacy engage around climate change in Paris. During the Paris Agreement signature five years ago, a hundred mayors were there saying we are part of the solution. So this mainstreaming in all global agendas may be way more successful, let's say, than having a standalone institution that will uh, probably uh, deliver something differently. I mean, this is uh, up to local and regional governments to uh, to figure out. But that's that's one part of the answer. The mainstreaming has been happening, and in my view, it's been extremely effective because if we are able to say today that 101 targets out of the 169 targets of the 17 Sustainable Development Goals are not going to be met without local and regional engagement, it's because that advocacy has happened and the evidence was brought in terms of their uh, significant contribution. Now, the second part of the answer for me is that even if we see the rise of uh, what we call city-states, and sometimes we criticize uh, some big metropolitan areas for uh, being way more active outside their country boundaries than inside their country boundaries, I think more and more countries with the current pandemic agree that you need a much more polycentric, balanced urbanization that relies not only on large metropolitan areas and the rest, but on different cities of different size and intermediary cities in particular have a very strong card to play going forward. And uh, including in terms of striking better quality of life and uh, minimizing the agglomeration costs and so on. And so we see many countries where, for example, national urban policies and issues related to territorial cohesion have gained a lot more traction today after the COVID-19 pandemic than maybe in the past, because this solidarity mechanism, this peer learning, um, this system of cities also need to happen in-house. So that cooperation and advocacy is something that really... Um, I think is a twofold process, not only raising the profile globally, but also contributing to that more polycentric urbanization within the different countries. Yeah, good. And I think we're moving towards a uh, rather positive and optimistic conclusion. Wrapping up, would you say that the pandemic has perhaps been a challenge and bad for human health, but it's had pretty good effects for city-to-city collaboration? So, of course, I mean, millions of people died and this is something we could have spared. Huh? But at the same time, uh, we know the motto, you never waste a good crisis. And by the way, all pandemics in the past have triggered rethinking of cities and urban paradigms. If you take the cholera pandemic in Paris in the 19th, you know, people were agglomerating in slums and, and so on until Haussmann came with huge engineering and infrastructure development that aimed to transform the city into a postal card. So it's not an exception that after such a major shock, we are rethinking the extent to which we can live in the cities because we want to, meaning we think that we can get better quality of life there rather than because we have to, which is because we have to work and therefore productivity and and jobs. And and we've seen uh, this happen uh, in the past. So it's not new. It's good piece of news. What I see is that there are a number of promising signals that make us think that there will be no return to normal 
because many city leaders are actually mainstreaming some of these lessons, let's say, into uh, the way they're thinking ahead. And for example, I think the combination of the Zoom effect uh, and the digital revolution and the Greta effect that was already important before the pandemic, this increasing citizen awareness and environmental awareness makes a number of solutions today way more acceptable uh, socially and politically than they were just two years ago. I mean, just remember Paris and Mayor Hidalgo closing some uh, sections of the riverfront for cycling and uh, walking and the major bronca and resistance that this created two years ago. And today we've not seen that in the dozens of cities that have created cycling pathway and that have put in place new forms of urban mobility to facilitate, you know, this social uh, distancing amongst others. So there are things that make us think that we are not returning to normal. And in that sense, of course, any of the lessons that can be taken from this crisis is, uh, is good for the future. Great, thank you so much. For this conversation, Aziza Ahmouch from the OECD, head of the division there of cities, urban policies and sustainable development. I have really had my eyes opened. Uh, thank you so much. I'm sure our listeners have done as well. Thank you all. Thank you so much for the invitation. Wow. Thank you very much, Aziza and Jan. And I'm sure Jan is not the only one who has had his eyes opened about what is going on in city-to-city -city cooperation, both to overcome the pandemic and to make our cities fit for the future. If you're enjoying this episode of Copa Radio, please remember to follow or subscribe or tell us your thoughts on Twitter to at GCR underscore 21 using the hashtag Copa Radio Podcast. Research Feature in this research feature, we talked to Dr. Carolina Aguera, who joined the center as senior research fellow in September 2020. At the center, Carolina is part of the research group Global Cooperation and Polycentric Governance. Hello, Carolina. It's great to have you here. So before we dive into your research project at the center, could you give us a quick introduction to your academic background and your current position? Thank you. My name is Carolina Guerre. I have a PhD in social sciences from the Universidad de Buenos Aires in Argentina. I'm actually a Uruguayan citizen, but I've been living in Argentina for the last 15 years. And I have specialized in information technology governance and particularly internet governance. My whole dissertation was about that topic using case studies in Latin America. I'm currently professor of the chair of new technologies at the Department of Social Sciences at the Universidad de San Andres in Argentina. And I'm also co-director and researcher of a Center for Technology and Society at the same university. The acronym is CETIS, and it's based in the law school at the Universidad de San Andres, although it is quite interdisciplinary as well. I'm also a visiting professor at the Universidad Católica del Uruguay. Thanks. So about your project at the center, what exactly do you do there? My project at the center is closely related with my internet digital governance interests since I'm looking more closely at a layer of problems related with digital data governance. You know, in digital governance, there are many ways of approaching where are the nuts and bolts of the issues and the concerns. Historically, Internet Governance Scholarship and my work as well have focused on institutions around the protocol layer, the layer that is in the middle between the content and the data and the deep infrastructure layers, the cables, the satellites. So one of the novelties for governance scholars more generally 
is that internet governance and the mechanisms, solutions and pathways developed mostly during the decade of the 1990s, then became sort of representative of a new way of addressing a global governance challenge with new institutional mechanisms, bottom-up governance, consolidation of new institutional types, multi-stakeholder governance participation around internet protocol development and internet protocol adoption and deployment. But in the last decade, and I would mark more specifically the last seven years since 2013 more particularly, I would say that the conversations around internet governance and digital governance have shifted towards the data layer more profoundly. This shift, in my view, is very much related with many factors. Two of the most important factors are the Snowden declarations, so the idea that we are under state of surveillance by the public sector, by states, but also by the corporate private sector. So this poses a strong challenge in terms of data protection and all the governance approaches to protecting personal data. But the other source of this emerges more forcefully with the expansion of AI-based systems, artificial intelligence technologies embedded in the technology we use in the social and digital platforms that we use for everyday life, for e-commerce, for socializing, etc. So this expansion of AI has generated another set of problems related with digital data, who captures it, who stores it, how does it flow, and what are the consequences around these models, both the mathematical, algorithmical models for equality, fairness, non-discrimination, but also for the opportunities for other smaller players and smaller entrepreneurs in all kinds of economies that want to become subjects in their own right in this digital economy landscape. So in my research, I'm working with this underlying tension of the two main sources of contention. They are not the only ones for sure that are taking this conversation from the traditional protocol layer approach at internet and digital governance to this other aspect that has data as a core element of the problem. That is a very complex but fascinating project. And I always wonder what inspires people's research. So can you tell us a bit more about how you found your spot, so to speak, and what is innovative about your approach? As I was mentioning, the scholarship around digital governance and internet governance was very much centered around institutions and around protocols. But then the conversation began to change the problems once these institutions and the stakeholders involved have shown that there is a way forward in moving with global cooperation and with the global governance mechanisms that have a high level of acceptance and legitimacy from the international community. Then what I began to perceive as an internet governance is that, okay, those issues were really not that critical in the conversations and in the public policy agenda. And what was emerging as more critical was how to address the upper layers of data and of content in this world where we are relying more and more in these technologies. So after more than a decade of doing research around traditional internet governance, institution, processes, actors, and the protocol layer, I decided that it was time to frame more forcefully how How are the bridges and the connections, if at all, between these digital governance actors and how they are affecting the traditional internet governance layer of discussions? Thank you. Now, most of our fellows in 2020 and 2021 were not able to come to Duisburg due to the pandemic. 
but I know that you were actually able to join us here in person and that you have been working and writing at the center a lot. So maybe you can share with us some more of the preliminary findings of your research and what kind of outputs, articles or events you are working on based on this. The project I'm conducting at the center has many outputs. Most of them are research papers. And one of them is a joint workshop proposal and book proposal with other colleagues at the center working at the intersection of digital governance and data governance. And we are working around the notions around how polycentric governance is a good framing to better understand the governance underpinnings. And I can say that more adequate conceptual bridges that can link these discussions around data protection, data use, fairness and sustainability is an essential gap that the research I am conducting personally, but also that we as a group in the center are working more collectively in this workshop and collected volume, I think will fill a void in the scholarship that is very Very, very relevant in the contemporary landscape. I also have to say that one of the issues that I have been very concerned with in the last year since the development of the COVID-19 pandemic is how governments across the world in developed and developing regions have embraced a digital technology to monitor, to survey, but also to inform citizens about COVID-19. So one of the unforeseen <laughs> outputs of my research here unforeseen in terms of during my application, I did not work around this idea. But then with the pandemic, the whole idea that technology can serve as a tool in the pandemic is something that I'm evaluating in a research by comparing the uses of different COVID-19 apps in different countries. Well, that's an interesting idea. And I'm looking forward to hearing more about your findings on that eventually too. And speaking of the pandemic, as someone studying the digital and data governance during a period where most of us spend so much time online, how would you say the pandemic has influenced your research and your field of study more generally? I am seeing something that is very important for my research more generally, and that will have an impact in my research for many years to come. And it is the idea that while we are living in times where we can no longer see information and communication technologies as a conveniency, we are increasingly seeing them as a necessity. We need information and communication technologies for our education, for our health, for transport to serve many and expand the new needs we have in this context. So convenience versus need is something that has become very clear in this context. And so the proportionality of some of the measures that are being undertaken both by the public but the private sector as well with respect to data collection, data storage, amassing such large amounts of data should be carefully assessed. The proportionality to balance the needs for the services this data collection and data capture are being used for. This is one of the main points of concern that I think we should take into consideration. We need these technologies, but how we are using them, how much data are these apps and these different devices collecting from citizens is something that has definitely become very, very prevalent in how I see some of the techno-solutionism and techno-optimism from certain parties, while on the other hand, we have a wider social discontent and social concerns with how these technologies are being used globally. Wow, that's even more food for thought at the end of an already jam-packed episode. Thank you so much for joining us and giving us such interesting insights into your work, Carolina. You're very welcome. Thank you for listening. To find out more about the fellowship program and our application process or about the research done at the center, visit our website, gcr21.org, and follow us on Twitter or Facebook. And if you don't want to miss our next episode, remember to follow and subscribe to Copa Radio on your favorite podcatcher. 
Cooper Radio is a production of the Kete Hamburger Colleague Center for Global Cooperation Research at the University of Duisburg-Essen. Show host of this episode was Professor Janot Skolte. Additional voiceover, Janine Herbert and Julia Fleck. Idea script and editing, Julia Fleck, Tobias Schäfer, Marike Gerzen, Janine Herbert and Lucia Bochum. Cover design and social media, Milena Gehle.